Chapter Three of The Jewels of Aptor by Samuel R. Delaney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Berard. Chapter Three. Geo walked down into the forecastle, still deserted except for Urson and Snake. Well, asked Urson, sitting up on the edge of his berth. What did she tell you? Why aren't you asleep? Geo said heavily. He touched Snake on the shoulder. She wants to see you now. Snake stood up, started for the door, but then turned around. What is it? Geo asked. Snake dug into his cloud again and pulled out the thong with the jewel. He walked over to Geo, hesitated, and then placed the thong around the older boy's neck. You want me to keep it for you? Geo asked but Snake turned around and was gone. "'I wonder what they do,' said Urson. "'Or did you find out? Come on, Geo, give up what she told you. Did Snake say anything to you while I was gone?' "'Not a peep,' answered Urson. "'I came no nearer sleep than I came to the moon. Now come on, what's this about?' Geo told him. When he finished, Urson said, "'You're crazy.' both you and her. I don't think so, Geo said. He concluded his story by recounting Argo's demonstration of the jewel's power. Urson fingered the stone on Geo's chest. All that in this little thing? Tell me, do you think you can figure out how it works? I don't know if I want to, Geo said. It doesn't sound right. You're damn straight. It doesn't sound right, Urson reiterated. What's the point of sending us in there with no protection to do something that would be crazy with a whole army? What's she got against us? I don't think she has anything against us, Geo said. Urson, what stories do you know about Aptor? She said you might be able to tell me something. I know that no one trades with it. Everyone curses by it. And the rest is a lot of rubbish, not worth saying. What rubbish? Believe me, it's just Bilgewater, insisted Ursula. Do you think you could figure out that little stone there if you had long enough, I mean? She said that the priests five hundred years ago could, and she seems to think you're as smart as some of them. I wouldn't doubt if you could work it. You tell me some stories first, said Gia. Oh, they talk about cannibals, women who drink blood, things neither man nor animal, and cities inhabited only by death. Sailors avoid it, save to curse by. Do you know anything more than that? There's nothing more to know, shrugged Urson. She said the stories you'd tell would not be one-tenth of the truth. She must have meant that there wasn't even a tenth part of the truth in them. And I'm sure she's right. You just misunderstood. No, I heard her correctly, Geo assured him. Then I just don't believe it. There are half a dozen things that don't match up in all this. First, how that little forearm fellow happened to be at the pier after two months, just when she was coming in. And to have the jewel still not have traded it or sold it already. Maybe, 
suggested Geo. He read her mind, too, when he first stole it, the same way he read ours. And if he did, maybe he knows how to work the things. I say, let's find out when he comes back. And I wonder who cut his tongue out. Strange one or not, that makes me sick, said the big man. About that, Geo started. Don't you remember? He said you knew the man it was. I know many men, said Urson. But which one of the many I know is it? You really don't know? Geo asked, quietly. You say that in a strange way, Urson said, frowning. I'll say the same thing he said, went on Geo. What man did you kill? Urson looked at his hands for a moment, stretched the fingers, turned them over in his lap like meat he was examining. Then, without looking up, he said, It was a long time ago, friend, but the closeness of it shivers in my eyes. I should have told you, yes, but it comes to me sometimes, not like a memory, but something I can feel, as hard as metal, taste as sharp as salt, and the wind brings back my voice, his words, so clearly that I shake like a mirror where the figure on the inside pounds his fists on the fists of the man outside, each one trying to break free. We were reefing sails in a flesh-blistering rain when it began. His name was Cat. The two of us were the two biggest men aboard, and that we had been put on the reefing team together meant that this was an important job and one to be done well and right. Water washed our eyes. Our hands slipped on wet ropes. It was no wonder my cloth suddenly flung away from me in a gust, billowing down in the rain, flapping against half a dozen ropes and breaking two small stays. "'You clumsy thing!' bawled the mate from the deck. "'What sort of fish-fingered sailor are you?' And through the rain I heard Cat laugh from his own spar. "'That's the way luck goes!' he cried, catching at his own cloth that threatened to pull loose. I pulled mine in and bound her tight. The competition that goes rightly between two fine sailors drove a seed of fury into my flesh that should have bloomed as a curse or a returned jibe. But the rain rained too hard, and the wind was too strong, so I bound my sail with silence. I was last down, of course, and with only a few lads below on deck, when I saw why my sail had come loose. A worn mastering had broken, caused a main rope to fly, and my canvas to come tumbling, but the ring also had held the nearly broken aft mast together, and in the wind a split twice the length of my arm pulled open and snapped to again and again, like a child's noise-clapper. There was a rope near, an inch-thick line coiled on a spike. Holding myself to a rat-line by not much more than my toes, I secured the rope and bound the base of the broken pole. Each time it snapped too. I looped it once around and pulled the wet line tight. They call this whipping a mast, and I whipped it till the collar of rope was three feet long to the top of the cleft, and she couldn't snap any more. Then I hung the broken ring on a peg nearby 
so I could point it out to the ship's smith and get him to replace the rope with a metal band. That evening at mess, with the day's incidents out of my mind and hot soup in my mouth, I was laughing over some sailor's tale about another sailor and another sailor's woman when the mate strode into the hall. "'Hey, you sea scoundrels!' he bellowed. There was silence. "'Which of you bound up that broken mast aft?' I was about to call out, I, it was me, when another man beat me by bawling. It was the big sailor, sir. That was a name both Cat and I were often hailed by. Well, snarled the mate, the captain says that such good thinking in times so hard as these should be rewarded. He's seen the job and approved. He took a gold coin from his pocket and tossed it on the table in front of Cat. There you go, big sailor, but I think it's as much as any man should do. And then he turned and clomped from the mess hall. A cheer went up for Cat as he pocketed the coin. I couldn't see his face. The anger in me started now, but without direction. Should it go to the sailor who'd called out the name of the hero? Nah, for he had been down on deck, and through rain and darkness, Probably he could not have told me from my rival anyway at that distance. At Cat? But he was already getting up to leave the table. And the first mate, the same first mate of this ship here, friend, that we're on now, he was out stopping somewhere on deck. Perhaps it was this that caused my anger to break out the next morning when we were in calmer weather. A careless salt jarred me in a passageway, and suddenly I was all fists and fire. We scuffled, we banged, we cursed, we rolled. In fact, we rolled right under the feet of the mate who was coming down the steps at the time. He sent a boot into us and eight different curses, and when he recognized me, he sneered, Oh, the clumsy one. Now, I'd had a fiery record before. Fights on ship are a breach few captains will allow. This was my third, and one too many, and the mate, prompted by his own opinion of me, got the captain to order me flogged. So, like a carcass to be sliced and bit on, I was led out before the assembled sailors at the next sunrise and bound to the mainmast. I thought my wrath went all toward the first mate now, but black turned white in my head into something that I could bite into, when he flung the whip to Cat and cried, Here, big sailor, you've done your ship one good turn. Now ropes leap off your face and do it another. I want ten stripes on that one's back, deep enough to count easily with a finger dipped in salt. They fell, and I didn't breathe the whole time. Ten lashes is a whipping a man can recover from in a week. Most go down to their knees with the first one, if their rope is slack enough. I didn't fall until they finally cut the ropes from my wrists. Nor was it till I heard a second gold coin rattle on the deck from the first mate's hand and the words to the crew, See how a good sailor gets rich, that I made a sound, and it was lost in the cheer which sprung from the other men. Cat and one other lugged me to the brig. As I fell forward, hands scudding into straw, I heard Cat's voice come. Well, brother, that's the way the luck goes. Then the pain, 
made me faint. A day later, when I could pull myself up to the window and look out on the back of the ship, we caught the worst storm I'd ever seen, and the slices in my back made it no easier on me. Pegs threatened to pull from their holes, boards to part themselves. One wave washed four men overboard, and while others ran to save them, another came and swept off six more. It had come so suddenly that not a sail had been raised, and now the remaining men were swarming to the ratlines. From my place at the brig's window, I saw it start to go, and I howled like an animal, tried to pull the bars away, but legs passed by my window, running, and none stopped. I screamed at them, and I screamed again. The ship's smith had not yet gotten to fix my makeshift repair on the aft mast with another metal band, nor, with my anger, had I yet even pointed it out to him, as I had intended. It didn't hold a quarter of an hour. When it gave, there was a snap like thunder, under the tugging of half-furled sails, ropes popped like threads. Men were whipped off like drops of water shaken from a wet hand. The mast raked across the sky above me like a claw, and then fell against the high mizzen, snapping more ropes and scraping men from their perches as you'd scrape ants from a tree. The crew's number was halved, and, when somehow we crawled from under the sheets of rain, one mass fallen and one more ruined, the broken bodies with still some life numbered eleven. A ship's infirmary holds ten, and the overflow goes to the brig. The choice of who became my mate was between the man most likely to live, figuring that he could take the harder situation more easily than the others, and the man most likely to die, figuring that it would probably make no difference to someone that far gone. The choice was made, the latter choice, and the next morning they carried Cat in and laid him beside me on the straw while I slept. His spine had been crushed at the pelvis, and a spar had pierced his side with a hole big enough to put your hand into. When he came to, all he did was cry, not with the agonized howls I had given the day before when I watched the mast topple, but with a little sound that escaped from clenched teeth, like a child who doesn't want to show the pain. It didn't stop for hours, and such a soft sound, it burned into my gut and my tongue deeper than any animal wailing would. The next dawn stretched copper foil across the window, and reddish light fell on the straw, the board floor, and the filthy crumpled blanket they had laid him in. The crying had stopped and was replaced now by a gasped breath, sharp every few seconds, irregular, loud. I thought he must be unconscious, but when I kneeled to look, his eyes were opened and he stared straight into my face. You, he said to me with the next gasp, it hurts. You. Be still, I said. Here, be still. The next word I thought I heard was water, but there wasn't any in the cell. I should have realized that the ship's supplies had probably gone, for the most part, overboard. But by now, hungry and thirsty myself, I could see it as nothing less than a stupendous joke when one slice of bread and a single tin cup of water 
were finally brought and embarrassedly and silently handed in to us about seven that morning. Nevertheless, I opened his mouth and tried to pour some of it down his throat. They say a man's mouth and tongue turn black from fever and thirst after a while. It's not true. The color is the deep purple of rotten, shriveled meat. And every taste bud on the dead flesh was tipped with that white stuff that gets in your mouth when your bowels are upset. He couldn't swallow the water. It just dribbled over the side of his mouth that was scabbed with purple crust. He blinked his eyes and once more got out. You, you, please. And then he began to cry again. What is it? I asked. Suddenly he began to struggle and got his hand into the breast of his torn tunic and pulled out a fist. He held it out toward me and said, Please, please. The fingers opened and I saw three gold coins, two of whose histories suddenly leapt into my mind like stories of living men. I moved back as if burned, then I leaned forward again. What do you want? I asked. Please, he said, moving his hand toward me. Kill, kill. And then he was crying once more. It hurts so bad. I got up. I walked across to the other side of the cell. I came back. Then I broke his neck with my knee and my two hands. I took my pay up. Later, I ate the bread and drank the rest of the water. Then I went to sleep. They took him away without question, and two days later, when the next food came, I realized, sort of absently, that without all of that first bread and water, I would have starved to death. They finally let me out because they needed the muscle, what was left of it. And the only thing I sometimes think about, the only thing, I let myself think about is whether or not I earned my pay. I guess two of them were mine anyway, but sometimes I take them out and look at them and wonder where he got the third one from. Urson put his hand in his tunic and brought out three gold coins. Never been able to spend them, though, he said. He tossed the little pile into the air and then whipped them back into his fist again and laughed. <laughs> never was able to spend them on anything. I'm sorry, Geo said after a moment. Urson looked up. Why? I guess these are my jewels, huh? Maybe everyone has theirs someplace. You think it was old cat, maybe? Sometimes when I was in the brig, perhaps, earning that third coin, slicing out that little four-armed monster's tongue? Somehow, I doubt it. Look, I said I was sorry, Urson. I know, Urson said. I know. I guess I've met a hell full of people in my short, wet life, and it could be any one of them. He sighed. Though I wish I knew which, but I don't think that's the answer. He lifted his hand to his mouth now and nodded his thumbnail. I hope that kid doesn't get as nervous as I do, he laughed. He'll have such a hell of a lot of nails to bite. <laughs> then their skulls nearly split apart. Hey, 
said Geo. That's Snake. And he's in trouble, too, said Urson. He leapt onto the floor and started up the passageway. Geo came after him. Let me go first, Geo said. I know where he is. They reached the deck, raced along the side of the cabins, until they reached the door. Move, ordered Urson. Then he rammed against the door and it flew open. Inside, behind her desk, Argo whirled, her hand on her jewel. What is the... But the moment her concentration turned, Snake, who had been immobile against the opposite wall, suddenly vaulted across the table toward Geo. Geo grabbed the boy to steady him, and immediately one of Snake's hands was at Geo's chest where the jewel hung. You fools! hissed Argo. Don't you understand? He's a spy for Aptor. There was a sudden silence. Then Argo said, Close the door. Urson closed it. Snake still held Geo and the jewel. Well, she said, it is too late now. What do you mean? asked Geo. That had you not come blundering in, one more of Aptor's spies would have yielded up his secrets and then been reduced to ashes. She breathed deeply. But he has his jewel now, and I have mine. Well, little thief, there's a stalemate. The forces are balanced now. She looked at Geo. How do you think he came so easily by the jewel? How do you think he knew when I would be at the shore? Oh, he's a clever one, with all the intelligence of Aptor working behind him. He probably even had you planted, without your knowing it, to interrupt us at just that time. No, he began Urson. We were walking by your door, Geo interrupted, when we heard a noise and thought there might be trouble. Your concern may have cost us all our lives. If he's a spy, I gather that means he knows how this thing works, said Geo. Let Urson and I take him. Take him anywhere you wish, hissed Argo. Get out. Just then the door opened. I heard a sound, Priestess Argo, and I thought you might be in danger. It was the first mate. The goddess incarnate breathed deeply. I am in no danger, she said evenly. Will you please leave me alone, all of you? What's the snake doing here? Jordy suddenly asked, seeing Geo still holding the boy. I said, leave me! Geo turned away from Jordy, and stepped past him onto the deck, and Urson followed him. Ten steps farther on, he glanced back, and seeing that Jordy had emerged from the cabin and was walking in the other direction, he set Snake down on his feet. All right, little one, march. In the passage to the forecastle, Urson asked, Hey, what's going on? Well, for one thing, our little friend here is no spy said Geo. "'How do you know?' asked Urson. "'Because she doesn't know he can read minds.' "'How do you mean?' Urson asked. First of all, I was beginning to think something was wrong when I came back from talking to the priestess. You were too, and it lay in the same vein you were talking about. 
why would our task be completely useless unless we accomplished all parts of her mission wouldn't there be some value in just returning her sister the rightful head of leptar to her former position and i'm sure her sister may well have collected some useful information that could be used against aptor so that would be some value even if we didn't find the jewel it doesn't sound too sisterly a thing to me to forsake the young priestess if there is no jewel in it for her and her tone the way she refers to the jewel as hers there's an old saying from before the great fire even power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and i think she has not a little of the ungoddess-like desire for power first peace afterwards but that doesn't mean this one isn't an outdoor spy said urson wait a minute i'm getting there at first i thought he was too the idea occurred to me first when i was talking to the priestess and she first mentioned that there were spies from aptor the coincidence of his appearance that he had even managed to steal the jewel in the first place that he would present it to her the way he did all this hinted something so strange that spy was the first thing i thought of and i'm sure it was the first thing she thought as well and she especially would think this if she did not know that snake could read minds and broadcast mentally because ignorance of his telepathy removes the one other possible explanation of the coincidences but urson why did he leave the jewel with us before he went to see her because he thought she was going to try and take it away from him exactly when she told me to send him up to her i was fairly sure that was the main reason she wanted him but if he was a spy and knew how to work the jewel then why not take it with him present himself to argo with the jewel showing himself as an equal force and then come calmly back leaving her in silence and us still on his side especially since he would be revealing to her something of which she was nine-tenths aware of already and would watch him no more carefully than she would were it not confirmed all right said urson why not because he was not a spy and didn't know how to work the jewel yes he had felt its power once perhaps he was going to pretend he had it hidden on his person but he did not want her to get her hands on it for reasons that were strong but not selfish here snake said geo you know how to work the jewel now don't you but you learned from argo just now the boy nodded here then why don't you take it geo lifted the jewel from his neck and held it out to him snake drew back and shook his head violently urson looked puzzled snake has seen into human minds urson he's seen things directly which the rest of us only learn from a sort of second-hand observation he knows that the power of this little bead is more dangerous to the mind of the person who wields it than it is to the cities it may destroy well said urson as long as she thinks he's a spy at least we'll have one of them little beads and someone who knows how to use it 
I mean, if we have to. I don't think she thinks he's a spy anymore, Ursa. Huh? I give her credit for being able to reason at least as well as I can. Once she found out he had no jewel on him, she knew that he was as innocent as you and I are. But her only thought was to get it in any way she could. When we came in, just when she was going to put Snake under the jewel's control, guilt made her leap backwards to her first and seemingly logical accusation for our benefit. Evil likes to cloak itself as good. He stepped down into the forecastle. By now, a handful of sailors had come into the room, mostly drunk and snoring on berths around the walls. One had wrapped himself completely up in a blanket in the middle berth of the tier that Urson had chosen for the three. "'Well,' said Urson to Snake, "'it looks like you'll have to move.' Snake scrambled to the top bunk. "'Now look, that one was mine.' Snake motioned him up. "'Huh? Two of us and one of those?' demanded Urson. "'Look, if you want someone to keep warm against, go down and sleep with Geo there. It's more room, and you won't get squashed against the wall. I'm a thrasher when I sleep.' Snake didn't move. "'Maybe you'd better do what he says,' Geo said. "'I have an idea that—' "'You've got another idea now?' asked Urson. "'Oh, damn, I'm too tired to argue.' He vaulted up to the top bunk. Now move over and be very small. He stretched out, and Snake's slight body was completely hidden. Hey, get your elbows out of there, Geo heard Urson mutter before there was only a gentle thundering of his snore. Silver mist suffused the deck of the ship, and wet lines glowed a phosphorescent silver. The sky was pale as ice, tricks of stars dotted over the whole bowl. The sea, once green, seemed bleached to blowing clouds of white powder. The door of a cabin opened, and white veils flung forward from the form of Argo, who emerged like silver from the bone-colored door. The whole movement of the scene made it look like a picture imagination fastens in the slow ripplings of gauze under breeze. One dark spot was at her throat, pulsing darkly, like a heart, like a black flame. She walked to the railing, peered over. In the white washing, a skeletal hand appeared. It raised on a beckoning arm, then fell forward in the water. Another arm raised now, a few feet away, beckoning, gesturing, then three at once, then two more. A voice as pale as the vision spoke. I am coming. We sail in an hour. The mate has been ordered to put the ship out before dawn. You must tell me now, creatures of the water. Two glowing arms raised up, and then an almost featureless face. Chest high in the water, it listed backwards and sank again. Are you of Aptua? Or Leptar, spoke the apparitional figure of Argo, again in the thin voice. Are your allegiances to Argo or Hama? 
I have followed thus far. You must tell me before I follow farther. There was a whirling of sound which seemed to be the wind attempting to say, The sea, the sea, the sea. But Argo did not hear, for she turned away and walked from the rail back to her cabin. Now the scene moved, turned toward the door of the forecastle. It opened, moved through the hall, the walls, more like polished steel than weathered wood, and went on. In the forecastle, the yellow oil lamp seemed a white flaring of magnesium. The movement stopped in front of a tier of three berths. On the bottom one lay a young man with a starved, pallid face. His mop of hair was bleached white. On his chest was a pulsing darkness, a black flame, a dark heart, shimmering with the indistinctness of absolute shadow. On the top bunk, a great form like a bloated corpse lay. One huge arm hung over the bunk, flabbed, puffy, without muscle. In the center berth was an anonymous bundle of blankets, completely covering the figure inside. On this the scene fixed, drew closer, and the paleness suddenly faded before darkness, into shadow, into nothing. Geo sat up and knuckled his eyes. The dark forecastle was relieved by the yellow glow of the lamp. The gaunt mate stood across the room. Hey, you, he was saying to a man in one of the bunks, up and out, we're sailing. The figure roused itself from the tangle of bedding. The mate moved to another. Up, you dog-face, up, you fish-fodder, we're sailing. Turning around, he saw Geo watching him. And what's wrong with you? We're sailing. Didn't you hear? Nah, you go back to sleep. Your turn will come, but we need experienced ones now. He grinned briefly, and then went on to one more. Hey, you stink like an old wine cask. Raise yourself out of your fumes. We're sailing. End of chapter 3